this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Next up, you're going to hear from Terry Lambers, the founder and CEO of Tri-County Petroleum, a $42 million business. They sold gas and lubricants, so not a sexy business by any stretch of the imagination. But Terry did it in a really thoughtful way. And my favorite part of the interview comes fairly early where he talks about his cash flow cycle and how important it was for him to manage his cash because Selling something is is commoditized as gas. It's very expensive, but very low margin. And so you've got to have a lot of cash and you've got to manage it really, really well. Uh, So here to tell you the rest of the story is Terry Lambers. Terry Lambers, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Good morning, John. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great. I'm great, man. So tell me about Tri-County. You were in the gas business, is that right? Wholesale fuel and lubricants. So we (laughs) didn't own any gas stations. We had two and 4,000 gallon trucks and we delivered to trucking companies, uh, agricultural farm accounts, municipalities, manufacturing, stuff like that. Anywhere you see like 500 gallon tanks, bulk tanks like that. So if I'm a big, Uh, if I'm a farmer and I, you know, I'm running combines and I don't want to take my combine down to the gas station. I'll have like a <laughs> petroleum, like a gas tank on my farm, right? Correct. And you'd fill that yep. up and then the farmer would fill up his combine. Correct. That's exactly what we did. Got it. Same Got way it. with trucking companies, you know, and then delivered bulk oil, motor oils, hydraulic oils. So um, that's what we did. Had a fleet of trucks that did that. You know, it's funny when I do this show, I always smile at all the crazy businesses there are out there. Like there, there is a business for selling gas to farmers. Who knew? Yes. Well, you know, and another interesting on the bulk oil side, delivering lubricants. So one of our larger bulk oil customers made barber chair pumps and we delivered them about 10,000 gallons a year of hydraulic oil. And there's one quart, they would put one quart of hydraulic oil per barber chair pump. That's a lot of barber chair pumps. That is a lot of barber chair pumps. And so how did you get into this business? Sounds kind of a, a weird business to get into. Yeah, uh, it's a family business. Grew uh, company was actually started like in 1920. My dad bought the company in 1975, so I grew up with it. I worked away from the business for a little bit, came back to the company in 1991. And I tell people then it was my dad, and my mom, me, my mom and dad. We had two trucks, and it was a good day if they both started. 
(laughs) (laughs) So at the time, my dad was having some financial difficulties, and we had the opportunity to buy another company. And I knew if we did that, it would put it back back in the black. So I came back from a banking job uh, to work with my mom and dad. And uh, because of the banking situation, I ended up starting a company, Tri-County Petroleum, and we merged my dad's company into that company and purchased Bone Oil Company in April of 1992. So that was my first acquisition, and we was off to the races. And uh, in the next 18 years, had the opportunity to buy 11 other companies. Uh, So by the time we got done in 2010, uh, we covered 14 counties in southern Illinois in the St. Louis metropolitan area and uh, had five bulk plants, three offices, and a fleet of about 20 trucks and 25 employees. So you know, a pretty big operation. We was the largest privately held wholesale fuel and lubricants distributor in Southern Illinois. Well, there you go. So 18 years is a long time. That's a, it's, it's an amazing business to have for that length of time. And, and clearly it's been around for much longer. You said you bought 11 companies. What was the formula for buying these companies? I mean, were you buying them on a multiple of profit or a multiple of revenue or just their assets or inventory? Like, what were you buying? We were typically, all of them were asset purchases. So, and and mainly they had to be bankable deals. So typically we was paying uh, a multiple of earnings between three and five you know, of like an IBDA number. And, um, but really going through and looking at the company, and that was an interesting process because you really learned the banking side of it to make it a bankable deal. And once the company grew in size enough to where our current cash flow and collateral would support the company that we wanted to purchase without using any of the income coming from that company, that's when we really started to grow quickly. What do you mean by bankable deal? meaning that you can go – that the bank's going to finance it. At what proportion would the bank finance of these acquisitions? You, you mentioned you made uh, you know, to 11 of them. What proportion is the bank financing? Uh, you know what? A lot of times, 100%. So, um, it, but I've done it – I mean, we purchase companies every way imaginable, 100% bank financing, 100% owner financing. I bought two companies on an earnout basis because they was distressed, so I gave them 25% of the gross profit for three years, uh, or actually I take that back for one year. And, uh, the one company that we purchased like that, I purchased it in three days, found out about it on a Wednesday, uh, made it, they asked them, what, what are you doing with your customers? They said, we're telling them to go someplace else. I said, hold the phone. I'll be right there. So I drove down, met with the family as a situation where the owner had passed away and willed the company to his niece and it was losing a lot of money. So they was going to, it was a Wednesday. They was going to shut it down on Friday. And by Friday we had a deal worked out where I gave them 25% of the gross profit of the customers that we kept. And it turned out to be a very fair deal for him. You mentioned gross profit. I mean, at the end of the day, gas, or I think of gas as a bit of a commodity. I mean, were you selling essentially a commodity? Yes, absolutely. We call it a fungible product, which means that it's the same thing. So, you know, it comes out of the pipeline. So the diesel fuel or gasoline that I'm selling is really absolutely no different than the gasoline or diesel fuel that my competitor is selling. So really, I think that's one of the things where schools teach you wrong. They teach you sales and net income. And I think business owners should really focus in on gross profit and cash flow because there's a distinct difference between the two. Yeah, for sure. So in your case, I mean, how did you convince the farmer to use you and not the guy down the street? 
uh, it's selling service. And then because of our size, you know, in the later years we could do, we did a lot of fuel hedging, um, which is something that if you're a smaller marketer, you couldn't do. And uh, we also had about 400,000 gallons in storage, which is very unusual. So we was able to store a lot of diesel fuel. So especially in the ag community, you know, you never know what the weather's going to be doing. Um, we could keep a lot of fuel around and that, that gave us an, a competitive advantage. And then with lubricants, uh, we also had a lubricants packaging facility with about 50,000 gallons of storage and actually had my own brand of lubricants that are trademarked. Why did you create your own brand? So that's an interesting question. With gasoline and diesel fuel, it doesn't really matter the size of your company. Everybody pretty much pays the same price. With lubricants, there's it is just the craziest thing. Uh, prices are all over the board, and if you're buying a branded product, it is you're going to be paying probably two or three dollars a gallon just for the branding of that product. So it was much cheaper for us to go directly to a blender and have them blend our own product. And that, that, that's not overly complicated. I mean, it's about like making a cookie. There's only so many, you know, there's only so many base stock suppliers and there's so many additive suppliers and, you know, you just put the right additive package with the base stock and it's not as complicated as you would think. And you created a brand. Does that, did that give you better margins? Absolutely. Better margins and much more competitive on price. Because you weren't buying a branded oil you and buy reselling a product. Got Correct. it. Got it. And actually what we did is we, we had what we called our um, good, better, best. So there's very high-end lubricants like uh, Schaefer's. So we sold Schaefer's products. So if you wanted a, a 1540 that was, you know, twice the normal price, that's what we would give you. Uh, we was a branded mobile distributor. So we had branded mobile products that we sold. And then we also had our extreme lubricants brand, which was our private label brand. Got it. And that was the, the good and the good, better, best scenario? Yeah, correct. Got it. And so what kind of margins are you guys, not gross margins, but net income, like let's call it EBITDA. What, what sort of EBITDA multiples are you, are you uh, or EBITDA percentages are you able to get out of this business? I think of it as a highly commoditized, very low EBITDA business, but I, I mean, I'm, I may be totally wrong. That might be just my ignorance. So you're, we're, that's interesting because I had to go around with a banker about this, actually switch banking relationships. So as we make our money on cents per gallon. So if the price of fuel goes, if you're making 20 cents a gallon and fuel's $2 a gallon, you know, it's 10%. If fuel goes to $4 a gallon, now you've got a 5% margin or whatever. Your margin's gone down, but you're still making the same cents per gallon. So we made our money on cents per gallon. And typically our cash flow versus the gallons, uh, was around three cents. I got, I, I believe. So you you would you would basically gross margin. You'd earn three cents per gallon sold. Gross margin, we was making about fifteen cents a gallon, and but by the time you netted it, your operating expenses out of there, we netted about three cents a gallon. Got it. And what did that what did that amount to in terms of revenue? Like it's so you'd you'd have massive revenues and relatively low EBITDA. Is that right? Yes, because, uh, I mean, it's impressive to say we had $42 million a year in sales, which we did. I mean, that's over $250,000 a day. So we're rolling through a lot of cash. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's a very low margin that you're making. 
Like, what would you net on forty-two million in sales ballpark? Mm, typically, we should make about a million dollars. Got it. In the EBITDA. Got it. Okay. And so that is a cash flow nightmare in the sense that if you have the wrong cash flow model on forty-two million in sales and a million in profit, you're out of business pretty quickly. Talk to me yeah. about your cash flow model. How did you structure that? I paid very close attention to um, key performance indicators. So I had a financial ratio page. I, I ran my financials on a month rolling monthly basis for my income statement, my balance sheet, and then ratios. And I had, you know, I had three operations managers and an office manager, and I could run that company pretty much by paying attention to my ratios. I knew that my inventory days on fuel should be about three. My inventory days on lubricants should be about 55. My accounts receivable days typically ran about 27, and my accounts payable days, just because we had to pay, way we had to pay for fuel, would be about 10. So if all of a sudden I got seven days of fuel sitting around, you know, I need to be talking to my operations manager that orders all the fuel. It's like, why are we sitting on so much fuel? And maybe there's a good reason for it. Maybe we're going into uh, spring planting season. Uh, we was a licensed blender for biodiesel fuel, so going into spring, we would typically be sitting on a ton of bio b100 just so we didn't take the chance of running out so it's not that if your inventory days go up that that's bad as long as you know a reason for it so um in the same way with counts payable days uh i laugh my wife uh was in charge of all of our payables we call it the bank of tri-county and uh <laughs> if, if all of a sudden payable days went from 10 to 7 it's like honey what are you doing quit paying the bills as soon as you get them you know let that money sit in the bank a little bit so um but you know our margins were all over the place there was loads that you would only make you know one or two cents a gallon on or maybe you was doing work on a construction site where you was making 40 or 50 cents a gallon uh, we also did emergency fueling um, for hurricanes and power storm outages you know tornadoes here in the midwest stuff like that where you may be making a hundred dollars per hour so and and then dealing with the volatility of the price you really had to stay on top of the cost of your inventory versus current market conditions it could be tricky okay so let me just get this straight so uh you carry three days of fuel on hand and in inventory 55 days of oil um you you got paid on average in 27 days Yet you had to pay for the gas and the lube in ten days. Yeah, is that, about that makes right? sure. Yeah, yeah. So we had, yes, that is about right, and that's what was really tricky about this business. Um, there, you talk about working capital. You know, we typically ran with about a four million dollar line of credit, uh, and that's that what that's what was really tricky with the company. Uh, as fuel prices went up, it ate up a huge amount of working capital. So think of instead of thinking of your accounts receivable, say accounts receivable is typically three million dollars or more. You equate that to gallons. Say that was a million gallons that was sitting on your accounts receivable. Well, if fuels two dollars a gallon, that's two million dollars. If fuels four dollars a gallon, that's four million dollars. Well, if you if you remember back sure. to 2005, six, seven, eight. I mean, fuel went from two to four dollars very quickly, and you obviously wasn't going to make two million dollars in that time frame. So we was very dependent on the bank uh, to keep us to keep us bankable. Because basically, know, they've got to carry that. They've got to carry that gap. You're paying in ten days, but you're collecting in twenty seven days. So there's seventeen days of 
uh, financing to, to cover, right? Right. So, correct. And then the bigger you grow, the bigger the gap gets. Yeah. Was know? there, was there, so how did, were the accounts payable? Um, like, was there no way of getting these gas companies to give you a few extra days? Like, was 10 days they were going to cut you off after, after 10 days? Yes. And they're very strict. I called wow. it, uh, I mean, it's the kiss of death. If you miss a payment, you're, you're done. And then, and actually, what got worse about it, not only did they, you know, they kept you at 10 days as your payables got higher and higher. Then they wanted a letter of credit. Well, a letter of credit comes directly off your line of credit first. So then you need a bigger line of credit because now you have a letter of credit sitting out there, which is basically a blank check that the vendor can pull on anytime he wants. So the bank looks at that as, as if they're going to write that check. So it comes directly off your your line of credit. So before I sold the company, I actually had a deal worked out to buy another company, but I was really hesitant to buy that company just because, you know, it was at the height of fuel prices. So fuel was over $4 a gallon. So you're just, it's risky because you're selling this high priced product to customers, you know, that the bank in some cases wouldn't lend to. So if I bought this company, I'm going to need a bigger line of credit because now I'm buying more fuel. And I'm going to need a bigger letter of credit to give to my suppliers, which in turn means I need a bigger line of credit. Uh, it's like a dog chasing its tail. It's very frustrating. Mm. So what was it that made you want to sell this company? <laughs> so I tell people I had 3,000 local customers. And the key word to that is local. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, uh, I was just burnt out. Uh, owning an oil company with 3,000 local customers when fuel gets to $4 a gallon for the first time isn't a lot of fun. And the other thing that I think is, uh, you know, maybe for your listeners to realize about my company is we're in a very rural area. So people know you. So in those days, I mean, you couldn't go to church. You couldn't go to a, a, a town picnic, a restaurant without somebody wanting to pull you over and bend your ear about what the price of fuel was doing. So that <laughs> That played into it. I mean, they somehow like, thought you controlled the world oh, price. Yes, got, very much. Awesome. I mean, if you didn't have, you know, three raging phone calls by nine o'clock in the morning, you know, there was something wrong. Uh, the other thing that kind of came into play for me was uh, in 2006, my dad had a major heart attack. Thankfully, he survived, but he had to leave the business. And, uh, you know, uh, I was very blessed to have a great relationship with my dad. And once he had to leave the company, it just put a different spin on it for me. And I was kind of at a stage in life where it's like, well, you know, am I going to continue to do this for the rest of my life or uh, am I going to sell it and take some chips off the table? Because if I, I didn't mention at the beginning when I came back to work with my mom and dad, my starting salary was zero. And by this time, we amassed a, a very profitable and valuable company. So by selling it uh, was a way of securing that wealth for my family. I had to buy my dad out when he uh, retired in 2006. So I owed him his retirement. So if something happened with this company and it, going south, I mean, you know, I just, I just ruined my dad's retirement. I could always go get another job, but by selling the company, you know, his retirement was secured. My family's comfort was secured. So uh, it made sense to do it. So before we get into the actual sale, I'd love to know how you structured the buyout of your father. I'm assuming it was done over time where you're paying him. Yeah. How did you structure it? So, you know, that was interesting because of my, the way we started, it was really very unique. I started Tri-County Petroleum because if we bought the, our first company that we bought, we was going to 
buy it's going to be 100 percent owner finance but the way ucc filings work the bank would have automatically had control of the assets if we purchased it so that's why i started tri-county petroleum that, that eliminated that problem for us and then my dad and i just always operated on a handshake agreement that it was a 50 50 deal so in 2006 we had somebody value the company and i it was literally a one sheet of paper that says i owe you this amount and we're going to continue to pay my mom a salary and that's basically going to be the payment on that note and if i ever sold the company i had to pay him off and that's exactly what we did so basically you had a handshake deal that in 2006 the company was worth x you both owned 50% of it. And so you had an IOU to your dad for 50% of whatever the, the valuation was in 2006. Yes. Got it. And that, that and became... I, wish, I wish it could be that simple for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is that expression? The blood is thicker than water. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you had uh, that IOU, sort of that marker for, to pay your dad off, which was, which sort of came due when you went to sell it. Correct. And and so in 2010, you were getting all these angry phone calls about the price of oil from customers. You wanted to secure yourself personally. How much was your dad and sort of doing right by him uh, part of your uh, decision making? I was very fortunate that they was 100 percent behind me. Um, I worked with a lady in Weatherford, Texas. Her name is Betsy Bigsby, and uh, she does cash flow coaching. Uh, she brokers companies, and she puts on seminars uh, about cash flow and stuff like that. And I had an opportunity to work with her several times and, and learned a lot from her. And she also valued businesses. So I was very frustrated, but had no idea what my company was worth. So I contacted Betsy. She valued my company. And I was like, you know, if I can sell it for that, I, I let's go for it. How, and, how did she value it? What did she say it was worth? She valued it at north of $6 million. So she was saying so, that it, roughly six times EBITDA? I had ended up – well, yeah, it, correct. It actually sold for a little bit higher multiple of that. Uh, at the end of the day, I ended up keeping my selling. I ended up keeping my real estate and selling the real estate separately, which was a bad idea. Didn't know anything about the real estate business, so uh, that's where I really preach to people: build your team. You know, uh, some of the things I did right, some of the things I definitely do differently. But sorry, uh, why why was separating your real estate out uh, a mistake? Uh, because the real estate market was in the tank in 2010. So uh, you know what I perceived the value of that real estate to be just wasn't there in the market. I'll give it. So my main office in Puron at one time, I had an appraisal on that building for over $450,000 and I ended up selling it for $250,000. Mm. So something to keep in mind with real estate. Yeah. So, so Betsy values the business around six times EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization for those following along at home. Um, <laughs> uh, so, and you said, okay, well, if it's worth that, it's that's that sounded good to you when you heard it? That sounded good to me. What I should have done is consulted a financial advisor to see how that worked out, you know, in the whole picture with taxes and everything else. So um, it's really important, you know, to build your team. And there's some pieces that, you know, in hindsight, I should have done better. What, but why would a financial advisor, what would a financial advisor have told you? I think it would have been important to work with a financial advisor to see if that's enough money. Is is that actually enough money for your retirement? So so to help you figure out, okay, what's after tax that look like? I got to pay my dad off. 
Uh, I've got taxes, right. And then how much, how much do I need to, to, uh, so I'm assuming based on that lesson learned that, that at the end of the day, the number wasn't enough to fully kind of put your feet up. It wasn't 110% enough. Mm. It got me 95% of the way there. And I knew I might have to work a little bit, but you know, I think I would have, I thought I would have been in a little bit better situation. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, it, I'm in a good spot, but you know, I don't have any regrets from selling the company, but I would definitely advise people to do some things different than what I did. Like what? Like seek out a financial advisor. Uh, I, my CPA was also a very good customer, so I kept it very quiet to my CPA. So if I would have worked with the CPA and the financial advisor, I probably could have worked out a much better deal for, uh, income taxes, you know, because that was a uh, one heck of a check to write out. Uh, so that's just, it's just really important to have your team of people in place when you're going to go about selling your business. So Terry, was, was the, was the sale price of the company treated as income as opposed to capital gain? So we, Yes, a lot of it was ordinary income because you end up depreciating depreciating everything off. Um, you know, we was and just by the way, I grew the business. The bulk plants that I had, you know, we was able to purchase those through acquisitions for literally pennies on a dollar, just because there's nothing else that somebody else is going to be able to do with them. So when you go to sell that, it's all capital gains mm. or ordinary, actually ordinary income. So <laughs> you get hit with a pretty high tax rate. Out of interest, why, does your, why was your CPA a customer of yours? I'm trying to think why would a CPA need gas or lubricant? <laughs> it's, uh, he, he, so they had, uh, he's the principal of a very large accounting company, but he's also a very large farmer. Oh, he farms funny. probably over 4,000 acres. Oh, funny. Okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> so let's get into the actual sale itself. So Betsy says, look, this thing's worth six, roughly six times. EBITDA. you think, okay, that's a pretty good change. Um, what's next? Do you, do you hire a broker? Did you put it on some website? Did you take it to market? Like, how did you kind of get offers yeah. for the company? So Betsy is a broker. Uh, so we put it out there. Um, it you, took you mean you hired, eight, you hired Betsy? Is that what I hired, hired Betsy to, okay. to broker it for me. And uh, kind of funny, you know, it was out there for a while. We had a few people buy it. So, you know, it's a pretty big company. So, I mean, not only, you know, is there a $6 million sale price, but somebody's got to be able to have the working capital to absorb, let's just say, about $3 million worth of accounts receivable and another million dollars worth of inventory. So, really, somebody needs about $10 million you know, to take this thing on. So it's going to be a, a larger company. So about eight months goes by uh, before they grow Mark finds out about it. And I was grow Mark's it had two things going for me. Really? I was grow Mark's largest customer in Southern Illinois by a long shot. And they had just purchased a lubricants blending facility in console bluffs, Iowa, and wanted to get, so grow Mark's pretty big company. I mean, they're, they're nationwide, but primary Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, and uh, in Toronto or Canada area, and uh, they had no. So they just bought this lubricants blending facility. I had a lubricants packaging facility and about seven hundred fifty thousand gallons of lubricant sales. They wanted to get into the bulk oil business in Southern Illinois, where they had no gallons. So by purchasing me, one, I was their largest competitor on the fuel side, and boom, this would put them into the bulk oil lubricants business in Southern Illinois. So they were both so, a competitor and a customer? Uh, or you no, were a customer? 
they were strictly a competitor to me, but they wanted to get into the bulk oil business, which they was not in. So I if see. they bought me, this would put them solidly into the bulk oil business. So it was a very strategic acquisition for them. Got it. And so when did you become aware that, that Betsy was shopping the deal to Growmark? Oh, well, she called me and it was kind of funny. It's like, hey, Growmark's showing some interest in your company. I'm like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. You know, this has been my competitor my whole life. And it's like, I'm going to sell that FS. That's the name of their member companies. But you know what? At the end of the day, they could write a check. So all of a sudden, <laughs> they're kind of like your best friend. Now, at this point, did they know who you were or was Betsy keeping it confidential? Uh, she told, you know, she told me that they was interested, but it wasn't hard to figure out that it was me just, you know, even if they was given Growmark, if Betsy was given Growmark generic information and they said it's a company in Southern Illinois with 15 million gallons of sales and fuel and three quarters of a million gallons in lubricants. Well, that's me. So, um, you know, that's what, that's kind of interesting when you're going to buy a company and it's confidential, you're just trying to guess who it is. But, uh, but it was quickly revealed who it was, and we signed a letter of intent, and <laughs> this is another kind of an unusual thing. From the day – so it took about eight months to get to where they found Growmark. From the day we signed a letter of intent, the comp- we was done in six weeks. So how did – this is interesting because a lot of people would be scared silly to know that their greatest competitor, their biggest you know, dogfight battle – all of a sudden knew that they were for sale. So, I mean, how did you ensure that Growmark didn't use that information, uh, you know, against you in in some of the fuel deals that uh, you were competing on? Well, one, I mean, it it all took place in six weeks. So that went really quick. We did have an incident, though, where – because so Growmark bought my lubricants division and eight of their FS member companies bought my fuel division. And one of the managers from one of those – member companies sent an email out to their employees that they was buying Tri-County Petroleum before we even had the the asset purchase agreement signed, which took about one day for the word to get out on the street. So there would have been some real issues with that had the sale not gone through. And did did they use that information uh, or that compromising position against you in the negotiation? No, they did not. Interesting. And so how would you characterize the negotiations with Grow Market? Obviously, it was fast. How else would you characterize it? You know, I, I would characterize it as I was a, I would class myself as a sophisticated seller because I had purchased several companies. And Growmark is a $6 billion company, so they have a whole department that does nothing but mergers and acquisitions. So they – I would classify as a sophisticated buyer. They had their own attorneys in-house. So you know things were able to move very quickly. Got it. And so, so you get this letter of intent from Growmark. How did you react when you saw the letter of intent? You know, what was interesting is uh, it brought it to a level of some of the things I'd never done before. Uh, we pretty much negotiated the price and how we was going to do everything. That was pretty simple. The Where the eye-opener came was the day I got my closing statement, and I was actually to, supposed to bring $300,000 to the table. And I was like, what? Uh, they – because it was going quickly and they didn't have an opportunity to do some of their due diligence, they implemented a bunch of holdbacks, and I have never seen that before. And I, obviously, it's like I, 
I'm the one selling my company. I'm not bringing a check to the table. If you're not comfortable with it, then obviously we're closing too fast. Uh, we was able to resolve those issues, but uh, that was probably the biggest surprise that came out of it. So you got like you got to explain that. So so they, so you go to the closing meeting and and they all of a sudden drop on you that they are expecting you to bring three hundred thousand dollars to the table. What what sort of holdbacks or sorry? What, how do they justify that? So they would say, okay, they're going to buy. They they bought. They didn't buy the land, but they bought my the bulk tanks, you know, like the 20,000-gallon tanks that we had in our bulk plants and stuff like that. Well, they wanted some time to expect to inspect that equipment, so they just arbitrarily put it in a contract. Well, we're going to hold back, you know, $200,000 for this, and we need to look at this shit, so we're going to hold back $100,000 for that, and, and we need to check some of your, you know, equipment leases to customers, so we're going to hold back an amount of money for this, and, and uh, <laughs> when they sent the proposed closing statement is like, no, that ain't going to work. Got it. So look out for holdbacks. Is, yeah, guess, look out for the, holdbacks. Yeah. yeah. And so as you're going through, um, what was the original offer on a, as a multiple of EBITDA? I know Betsy had said you might be able to get six for it. What did, what did, um, what did Growmark offer? If I remember correctly, they probably started out at about four and a half. Yep. And we got up to six. Got it. And so how did you get them up almost a full turn and a half over, over the original offer? We was a very strategic acquisition for them. I mean, um, and uh, as I said earlier, you know, we're in a very rural area and I have my, I have customers complain about it today that by them taking me out of the marketplace, it eliminated a ton of competition. So there just wasn't, there just wasn't a, there's just not a lot of other people out there in this wholesale business anymore because it's it's a very capital intensive business. I, I uh, get so that. Company. I get that it's strategic, but how did you make the case to? Because people are listening, saying, "Okay, well, you know, I'm hearing Terry, my business is similar. If if I get acquired, I'm, you know, we're taking out a major competitor, et cetera. Like, how did you make the case to Growmark that they should pay six and not four and a half? That's what Betsy valued it at, and I was fortunate enough to be in a position. I mean, at the time I was only forty years old, so and it's a very, it's still a very profitable company. So I didn't have to do anything. So it was, I guess, kind of my stubbornness that's like, okay, this is what the company was valued at. I know I, you know, I had some debt, so even though I didn't go to a financial advisor, I knew I couldn't go much below that number, or it wouldn't, I wasn't going to sell it unless I could retire from it. So I knew I couldn't get. I couldn't take less than that or I wouldn't be able to retire from it. So I was just a line in the sand for me. If you want it, that's what it is. If not, I'll keep going about doing what I'm doing. Got it. And so how long was it between the original offer at four and a half and the actual uh, you know, letter of intent uh, at six times? Like how long a negotiation period was that that you got wow. them up? I, I don't think it took more than a month. Really? Yeah. Do you, it, was it, there a lot of back and forth? There was a lot of back and forth, but it went very quickly. And who are you I dealing with? I know that, that's with? unusual, but it, it, it really did. Who were you dealing with at Growmark? Like a corporate development head or like what was the – like a division leader? They, so Growmark has an acquisition department, and mm -hmm. that is a – you know, banks got vice presidents. Everybody's a vice president at a bank, right? Well, Growmark has, you know, agronomy, energy – and then, uh, you know, other departments, but then acquisitions was a department and I was dealing with the, the vice president of acquisitions. So, uh, 
she was a decision maker. So that that really helped in moving the thing forward. Got it. And so what came up during diligence after you'd agreed to the letter of intent before the actual check is in the bank, so to speak? What, what, what sort of issues came up during the due diligence phase? You know, that's where I think I did a good job. You know, so we'll probably mention my book, but in the book I talk about, you know, here's some of the things I did right. For me doing other acquisitions, one of the big issues for me buying a company would be that in our business, it's very normal to lease equipment. So you're, you're, you're giving somebody a thousand gallon tank and pump that they keep on their property. And is there a lease agreement to it? Do you have a signed lease agreement with that person that says that tank sitting on their property is yours? So I had signed lease agreements with all the equipment that I had out there. Um, all the rolling stock that we had, uh, had each, each truck had its own three ring binder that, you know, had the title and, and all documentation that goes with that vehicle in that binder. Um, anything that, you know, are, we had reviewed financial statements. So there was no question about the validity of the statements. So all of that stuff was valid and up to date. We had a, a very robust accounting software program that we could divide out our gross profit by, by zip code. Uh, so that, because that company, you know, cause the company's getting split up literally nine ways. So we was able to, um, show what each of their member companies was buying and the gross profit that was going to that company. Uh, it, it, the reason we could sell it so quickly is because we had all of our I's dotted and T's crossed as far as where equipment, where assets were at. And, um, you know, our financial data was, was rock solid, you know, reviewed financial statements. Um, our, our statements were done monthly. By the 10th of the month, we would have financials for the previous month. And because I had all the financial ratios and I mean, everything was up to date. That's, that's very important. Mm-hmm. Tell me the name of the book. What's uh, tell me a little bit about the book. What, what prompted so, you to yes. write it? And it's always been kind of a bucket list from selling the company. So the name of the book is you don't know what you don't know, uh, which is just so compelling because it's like, if I'd have known then what I know now, things would have been a lot different. Uh, and then the byline is everything you need to know to buy or sell a company. So I start off of talking about, um, buying and, you know, what's the advantage of buying an existing company versus starting a company from scratch or, you know, should you buy a franchise? And I, there's a chapter on valuing companies and then the process of buying a company. Uh, the middle part of the book I say is like building your team. So I got chapters on, you know, your attorney, your accountant, your CPA, your financial advisor, and then, uh, bankability, what makes your company bankable and how do you keep yourself bankable? And, uh, then the process, you know, uh, to build value in the company. So, I think you've taught me a lot about value builder. You know, it, it, it works. It's important. The, you know, what, what can you do to build value and make that company more value than the process of selling the company and how important confidentiality is. And uh, the last chapter I call don't be like the dog that caught the car, which basically I'm referring to know what the heck you're going to do with yourself once you sell your company. <laughs> got it. Got it. Important. So talk a little bit about, I mean, if you, I know you wrote a lot about lessons learned in the book, but if you could look back on the entire experience of selling to Growmark, what one thing might you do differently if you had it to do over again? You know, selling it to Growmark, everything went fine. What I would have done differently is I definitely 
would have used my team better. Um, obviously, my attorney was involved through the whole process, but I did not involve my CPA in the process. I did not seek out a financial advisor. And the third thing that I didn't do is I had no idea what I was going to do with myself when I sold the company. I mean, I, I just I had to work for them for six months, and at the end of that six months, you're kind of looking at your phone because it's not ringing anymore. And you know, you're used to getting a hundred phone calls a day. And uh, after about three months of hanging around the house, my wife was like, um, "You're going to get." a job because you're not hanging around here all day. <laughs> so, uh, so that's, I would have, I would have engaged, you know, make sure you have a team of people to help you go through the process. Uh, I want to talk about that, that experience of going from a hundred phone calls to nothing. Um, we did an interview, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now, uh, with an entrepreneur who, who actually characterized it as, as a form of depression. Like he, he, he went through a clinical period where he had to seek counseling and, and really work through it as a major sort of mental health issue. I mean, did, did, would, do you identify with any of those feelings of sort of feeling low or, or, or depressed, uh, about, about the sale? I don't know that I got depressed about it, but I'll tell you what, I mean, you go from being the king of the mountain to average Joe citizen overnight. And it's just, I mean, it's amazing how certain, you know, your suppliers treat you different, uh, customers, you know, former customers now treat you different, uh, former employees treat you different. You know, everything's former now. And you do. I mean, it was quite remarkable how some people really turned on you and uh, other people, you know, was still the same, happy for you. But uh, it is it is a remarkable change in your life. What advice would you give someone who is just on the precipice of, of, of selling their company to get through that? Yeah, think about it ahead of time. Um, I mean, I think a lot like of people said, think I, about it, Terry, and, and think, "Man, that'll feel great." Oh, be, I, was, be... I was probably in the same boat. So yeah. I would, I, you know, I love to hunt, so you know, it was October. So the company, well, I sold the company April first, but I was done in like October. It's like I'm going hunting, you know, and I would down at a farm that we have and helping my friend build a shed. And but you know, I, I can only hunt and golf so much, <laughs> and uh, uh, I was, I was kind of like a lost puppy a little bit. And one day I got a call from Regions Bank, and uh, they wanted me to do commercial lending. It's like, yeah, you know, I was always a finance guy. They offered me a good salary, four weeks vacation. And, you know, the branch that I was going to work at was close to home. It's like, man, let's try this. So, uh, so I ended up doing that for three and a half years. And, and, uh, and it was, it was okay at first because everything was in a box, you know, we just had to follow their rules. Uh, but after a while, my entrepreneurial itch came back and, uh, um, I got my CVA designation, a certified valuation analyst, and uh, we started a company and we help people with mergers and acquisitions. Hmm. Interesting. And value businesses. And so, so you actually went to went back to, to the other side and worked for a company for a while. That's uh, that's interesting. It's I think the first time I've ever heard that from uh, from one of the one of the uh, the guests on the show. Yeah, you know. Uh, a lot of people ask me, it's like, how would you do that? How could you be going from you know running your own large company to going back and working for somebody and I, I think the answer was it was just simple, you know. Uh, like I said, it's a it's a big company and big companies operate inside of a box. But what while that was fun for a couple of years, after a while, you know, the entrepreneurial itch did come back. So interesting. The book is called "You Don't Know What You Don't, you don't know. know." What you don't know. Terry Lemmers, thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.